I have noted in the past that, that I have deviated from the norm in the number of points, and today I'm deviating from the norm in the number of points, and uh, I guess I've borrowed from this sermon because it's only going to have two, so not four. You all should be happy about that one, we think. So, Ron with a different passage, moving towards the end of chapter 2, beginning in verse 16, Colossians. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Let's pray. Father, I feel uh, woefully insufficient this morning, weak and powerless. But you reminded Judah after the exile that the promises they received would not be accomplished by Judah's might and power. They would be done by your Spirit. And so we need your Spirit this morning to illumine the Scriptures, to apply them to us, to enable us to believe them, to sanctify us, to stir us to worship. May the Spirit do these things and more through Jesus' name. Amen. Ah, I did not take philosophy when I was in college. I avoided that whole thing. And so when I got to the seminary, they met us study philosophy. Um, <clears throat> so I felt like I was a little behind the, the eight ball uh, in regard to that. And one of the things we talked about was Plato. And in Plato's Republic, uh, there is a section in where he talks about the cave. And uh, his theory of the cave was such that the average person was one who was chained in this cave. And behind them, uh, there was a fire And between the fire and them, there was something real. But all they could see were the shadows of the reality on the cave in front of them. Now, for Plato, he said that the role of the philosopher was to free the people so they could stop looking at the shadows and begin to see the reality. Seems pretty simple, doesn't it? Seems to make sense in a bit of of this passage. Because there are people who were trying to keep the eyes of the, uh, the Colossian Christians on shadows. And Paul wants them to see the reality, the substance of it all. So, let's turn from the shadows to the substance this morning. The big idea is that Christ, the substance, supplies life to all who are united to him. Our first of our only two points today uh, is to stick to the substance. 
and not the shadow. The section, as you may have noticed, begins with the word therefore. That means that this is all meant to be an implication of what we have talked about for the last month. Paul is saying that precisely because you have been filled in Christ, who in whom the fullness of God dwells in bodily fashion, because you have that, therefore, this. He has already given us one warning earlier in this chapter, and it was the part of that. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And the, the structure of what we're doing today is those two warnings. There's two more warnings. Boom, boom. They both are related to two lies, and there is one life-giving truth that is connected with each. So even though I've only got two points, each point has three points. So... <laughs> Sorry about that. We have six points today. Um, <coughs> the warning, the first warning that he gives here is, you know, as a result of that, let no one pass judgment on you. He would say this precisely because apparently false teachers apparently were passing judgment upon the ordinary Christians there in Colossae. These false teachers had reached a decision, and they had claimed that the ordinary Christian was wrong and was in danger because they did or did not do certain things they thought were important. Paul wants them to know that this was a false judgment, that this condemnation that they may have heard was in fact a false condemnation, that it had, in fact, no merit to it, and they were not to heed it. It was to be ignored, (coughs) even to be refuted. The lie is this idea that you can maintain the ceremonial law for spiritual vitality. Now, as we get into sort of the meat of all of this and what was going on. I'm taking the viewpoint that it is the ceremonial law that they're looking at. There are people who disagree. There are reasons they disagree, and I just don't find that the reasons to disagree are greater than the reasons to agree, if that makes any sense to you this morning. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. The ceremonial law declared things clean and things unclean. That's part of why Paul here is saying that they were to let no one to judge them or condemn them on the basis of food and drink. Ceremonial law said what food you could have and what food you couldn't have. So if you were to have shellfish, you would be considered unclean. That was a food that you were not allowed to eat. Bacon was another one of those fine, fine things that you were not allowed to eat as a Jew. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Sorry. One of the arguments for those uh, uh, saying that this is not the ceremonial law is because it doesn't just say food, but it also says drink. And there there was nothing within the ceremonial law that said certain drink was unclean, except, of course, for blood. But what they're neglecting to remember is that there was such a thing as the Nazarite vows. 
And if you were to take the Nazarite vows, like Samson did, John the Baptist did, what you were doing was, in, in addition to the normal, ordinary food laws, you were also going to abstain from alcohol. Food, drink. This application of the ceremonial law in the Old Testament with regard to how you eat and how you drink. In places like Daniel 1, we see that Daniel and his three friends um, turned away from the food of the Babylonians. Okay, They turned away from the food and the drink. And on the basis of that passage, there were many Jews that lived in Gentile cultures that also practiced that. <clears throat> they did not eat meat because it was often sacrificed to idols, and they did not drink of wine because also it was used in the idol worship of the people. And so there were people who were probably advocating this abstention from uh, certain foods and from certain drinks in order to maintain some sort of cultic purity and therefore spiritual vitality. We see this even today. Seventh-day Adventists, they hold to the food laws, thinking that somehow uh, that makes them more sanctified than us ordinary sort of folk. Paul also mentions that they're not to be, um, let no one pass judgment upon you on the basis of festivals, new moon celebrations. These could be either Jewish or Gentile, because uh, some of the Gentile nations also uh, used the lunar calendar and had new moon celebrations, just like the Jews did. So it's, unconclu- it's inconclusive at that point as to whether syncretism was going on or not. But the key for me is Sabbath. And what's very important here is that although it says a Sabbath, in the Greek it reads Sabbaths, plural. Let no one judge you on the basis of the Sabbaths. That's an important designation. I think it's very important for us to understand precisely what's going on here. The Sabbaths, I believe, designate the additional Sabbaths that are associated with the festivals of the Jewish calendar. Because in addition to the ordinary Lord's Day, Sabbath on the on Saturday, okay, if you had, during all of the festivals there were additional days of rest, and so. What I believe Paul is getting at here is not having to do with the creational Sabbath, the one in every seven, but again, following the religious festivals of the Jewish uh, calendar and the Sabbaths that are associated with them, and then people saying, how come you are not celebrating like we're supposed to? And judging them. Well, no wonder your life is so uh, messed up because you're not following the prescribed days of celebration and Sabbath. The Sabbath itself, the one not associated with the festivals, was a creational ordinance. We see it uh, given to us in Genesis chapter 2. It's not part of the ceremonial law. It has to do, even with the the word itself, the the ceasing or resting, it it has to do initially with the ceasing from our ordinary work in order to rest and to worship. Paul's not saying, don't let people judge you on the basis of that. He's saying, I imagine he would say, we should rest, we should worship, 
We should be careful, though, that we do not um, try to put our understanding of exactly how it ought to be celebrated upon other people. There should be some charity and grace as an aside on that. But he's not saying the Sabbath itself is done in this passage. The false teachers, as I mentioned, were kind of advocating following these things, following the, the, the festivals and following uh, the, the, the food laws in order to somehow grow in their spiritual power, to somehow grow in the fullness that Paul says they already have in Christ. They're looking to the wrong thing. And here we see the nature of the lie. Because Paul says, these things are a shadow. That's why I believe he's talking about the ceremonial law. Because shadows point to something else. The shadow is there because there, there is a reality. One of the games that Jade and I used to play when she was younger, and we still play it sometimes, is stepping on your shadow. You know, we used to take walks every evening in Florida. Um, because the heat wouldn't radiate off the pavement like it does here. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, that would be the fun thing. Oh, I'm stepping on your shadow. You can only step on the shadow because of two things. The presence of a light source and the presence of something of substance. The sun is blocked in that, that space by the thing of substance. If there's no substance, there is no shadow. So these things are shadows, meaning there actually, there actually is a substance connected with them. Okay, that's why I think it's the ceremonial law. There was a substance. There was a reality. And the truth of this, okay, is that they pointed to something, and Paul says the substance or the reality, the body, belongs to Christ. Their function was to point to Christ and to prepare the people for Christ. But now that the reality has come, the the shadow is meant to go away. It is not meant to be lived in. Now that He has come and we are filled in Him, we have no more need for the shadows. It's like we have been, we, we have, we were who were in Plato's cave and were chained and could only see the shadows have been set free. And instead of turning around to embrace the reality of what is there, we're still fascinated with the stupid shadows. Just don't be foolish. Turn around. Recognize you have the reality and not just the shadow. It's like an adult woman playing with dolls instead of her child. The doll is but a shadow preparing a little girl for that one day when she may have her own child. When you're an adult, you put it away and you pick up the real thing. And so he's saying to them, don't stick to the shadow. Stick to the substance. Christ Himself. The author of Hebrews goes, in a sense, in the same direction when he talks about the, this Hebrews 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, 
instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. See, the, 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 the Hebrew Christians had, this, had a similar problem. Okay? They were tempted to return from the reality Christ to the shadows again. They were tired of being persecuted for worshiping the reality Christ, and they were going to go back to the shadows and the, the, the sacrifices of the Old Testament that, according to Hebrews, were fulfilled in Jesus Christ and do nothing anymore. And in fact, the temple was about to be obliterated because it was already obsolete. So the author of Hebrews would agree with Paul. Don't go back to the shadows. Stick with the reality. Christ, if you want spiritual power and you want spiritual fullness, seek Him. Seek the substance, the reality, the fullness. And so, you know, as we're going to move into this section of talking about how it is that we become more like Christ, we become mature in Him, any spiritual growth program, any, any sanctification method that is not centered on Christ is actually destructive to you. It will not help you. It will harm you. We are to flee from the shadow to embrace the substance. So the false teachers use the threat of condemnation to try and keep you stuck in the shadows. Second point, (coughs) that we are to cling to Christ who supplies life. The second warning also reveals what the false teachers are saying. This one's a little more difficult to sort of process. It would have been uh, very obvious to the Colossians exactly what Paul is talking about. It's not as clear to us, but he issues the third warning which is, let no one disqualify you. That word that we translate disqualify can mean condemn, but it more usually has the idea of being robbed of a prize. I'm sure there were a lot of people this week when um, it was revealed, well, it was alleged that Ray Lewis used the deer antler spray, that he would be disqualified from participation in the Super Bowl. Of course, there's no time for him to test. We get tested and ruled uh, invalid <coughs> for participation in the Super Bowl. Um, so this idea is that they're not only at risk of condemnation, but they're being told that they wouldn't even qualify. What lie is this resting upon? I think it's the lie of extreme sacrifices that are necessary for spiritual success. It's very similar. So they're saying, in addition to following the ceremonial law, you also essentially need to follow this rather rigorous pattern of lifestyle that we have for you. Not sure if they called it the seven steps or anything fun like that. But nonetheless, we see... some treatment here that they insisted on asceticism. One of those words that sometimes we don't use these days. Um, But it's that idea of trying to, uh, 
You're dealing harshly with the body in an attempt to sort of restrain its passions. And so uh, one way of asceticism is, uh, is fasting. Okay. Uh, you know, the, the monks would use periods, prolonged periods of silence or prolonged periods of, uh, of, of kneeling, somehow uh, creating a physical pain. Some would put little hooks in their clothing to prick them to remind them of the sinfulness of the body, these, all these sorts of things. We're not sure exactly what it is that these false teachers were advocating, but it was at least ascetic. Rigorous self-discipline. To somehow put their sin to death. A means for sanctification. A do-it-yourself method of sanctification, similar to what the monks would later adopt. In addition to the asceticism, we have this strange turn of phrase, the worship of angels. We're not sure exactly what that means. It could mean one of two things. Either they were to worship angels, which would be idolatrous and therefore absolutely prohibited. We see in the book of Revelation how John at times is tempted to worship the angels that give him these messages and they tell him, don't do it. I'm a servant just like you. You're supposed to worship the Lamb and the one upon the throne. It could be that. Or it could be the worship with the angels, probably pointing to some sort of um, altered state, some sort of ecstatic experience that they might go through. You know, we we have sort of tales of that here in in Arizona with people in peyote, right? Um, Maybe sort of like an altered state kind of experience. We're not sure which it is, but it doesn't matter, ultimately, because they're both wrong. Both of them would be pointing people in the wrong direction. What we also see going on here is that Paul says that all of this reveals that these teachers are arrogant. They're puffed up. Their minds are carnal or sinful, as he says here. And one of the odd things he says is how they go on in detail about their visions. They're going on and on about their experiences and how you should listen to them because of their experiences and that you too can also have these experiences. I've mentioned the name Todd Bentley here before. Uh, For those of you who don't remember um, that name, he was a Canadian, and we won't hold that against him. He has other problems. Um, <clears throat> and he was, uh, he was the center of a revival that took place uh, a couple towns away in Florida. Uh, you know, the last couple of years I was living there, and um, you could watch the revival on the Internet 24-7. It was like evangelical porn. It's bad news, folks. Okay? Um, and one of the things that was distinctive about Todd Bentley and his rather corrupt ministry was that he would go on and on about his visitations from angels. 
He would go on and on about all of the things that he that the angels supposedly revealed to him. And you'd think at some point, Galatians 1 might click into his head. No other gospel, even if it's preached by angels, that might kind of cross the, the synapses somewhere in there. It didn't happen. There are false teachers who will use things like that to um, lead people astray. It's popular... Sadly, it's very popular these days to find books 90 Minutes in Hell or 90 Minutes in Heaven. These kinds of books that uh, purport to be the the near-death experiences of people and what they see. If you have any of those on your shelf, toss them. That's That's the kind of stuff that Paul's talking about. That's not going to help you grow in Christ. That's going to hinder you in your growth in Christ. These people used their experience as a model for Christian living. They weren't using the Scriptures for the model. And the passages that Mike read this morning from Jeremiah would indicate that they are to be called false prophets. They're dreaming their own dreams. They're prophesying lies in the name of God. We see the same thing in Isaiah in uh, chapter 20. Verse, no, sorry, chapter 8, verse, uh, starting at verse 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who church, uh, chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. In other words, if they speak not according to the Scriptures, if they're trying to distract you and dissuade you with their own private visions, they have no light of day. False prophets. You'll notice in the other passage that Mike read for us, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul never shared his visions. He did not try to gain an audience by the visions that he had. Paul followed his own advice, so to speak. It was John who shares his visions, but that was because John was commissioned to share those visions in the book of Revelation. And so when I do tell you stories about my life, I am not the hero. It's not about how good I am. I am the one who is in need of help, just like you. It is Christ himself who is the hero. If I tell a story about myself. What Paul says here is that this was a symptom of a far greater problem with the false teachers, and it is meant to be an encouragement for us. Here's the truth. Holding fast to the head, Christ. We are nourished and knit together. And so their problem was that they were not possessing Christ the head. They were not connected to Him. They were not being nourished and knit together, these false teachers. They didn't have Christ. Oh, they looked powerful. But Paul says they would perish. 
back at the, <clears throat> to help, help us understand this, uh, back at the winter meetings, the Red Sox announced that they had reached an agreement with Mike Napoli, who formerly played for the Texas Rangers. Uh, he was going to be their new first baseman. And then they never announced the actual signing. And everyone was wondering, what's going on? Because usually, oh yeah, we've reached an agreement. The guy comes in, has his physical. Then they have the press conference. So they've never had a press conference. What's going on? Well, during his physical, it was revealed he had a problem with his hips. And that problem um, goes by the name of uh, a vascular necrosis, otherwise known as osteonecrosis. What it means is, is that there's not an ample blood supply to his hips. And so the bone begins to die. And if it's not caught in time, it becomes very brittle and then falls apart. This is part of what undid Bo Jackson, one of the greatest athletes that the, the world has ever known. He had this in his hips, and it was because he broke his hip in a, 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 in a football play that his hips could never heal and he could never return to athletic competition. Brett Favre, on the other hand, shortly before beginning his, uh, his time in, in uh, Green Bay with the Packers, was diagnosed with this, and he was successfully treated and had a very long, healthy, good career, I think, uh, as the Green Bay Packer uh, quarterback. I believe he's a Hall of Famer when he gets there. Um, but the idea here is that it's not connected anymore to the life source. It is beginning to die. Okay? That's what these guys are like. They're like someone with osteonecrosis. They're not receiving the life, blood, and nutrients that they need to thrive. And it is only as a Christian church, um, individually and corporately, are connected to Christ, can continue to lay hold to the head that they are strengthened by Christ. Okay, the, you can have a, a country club or community or something, you know, uh, but it's not going to be a Christian community unless it's connected to Jesus. And so what Paul is saying is, is that they've got a fake, they're trying to build a fake community. Because they're not connecting people to Jesus, they're connecting it to themselves. All right? Jesus says that He wants to nourish us. That's the that idea of, of, of supplying. It reminds me of what happened in, uh, in Genesis 45 when Joseph said to his brothers, There in Goshen I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. Joseph provided for his brothers and and their families out of his own supply, to his own neglect, in a sense. And it's a picture of the gospel in that Jesus supplies at his own expense what we need to be spiritually mature. So why are we looking somewhere else? Why would we think of looking anywhere else? Lay, cling to the head, Christ. 
It is God, through His Son, Jesus, who makes the body grow. It's not tricks. It's not gimmicks. It's not special effects or special programs. It's this ordinary, boring stuff. The preaching of the Word. Prayer. The receiving of uh, the signs of the covenant. These, these means of grace. That's how we cling to the head. That's how we are drawn together, knit together, strengthened. It's that way. So that we can thrive. And so the false teachers, they clung to the shadows. They refused to hold fast to Christ. And not only did they lack power, but they lacked life, spiritual life in Christ. They couldn't build or sustain a healthy community to be nourished and built as a healthy community. We, just like the Colossians, must cling to Him, the reality, the substance to which the shadows pointed us. We must hold fast to Him and not be distracted by arrogant teachers who focus on their own greatness. Christ is the one who justifies and sanctifies all those for whom He died. It is Christ who makes us thrive. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, we... uh, Recognize the warnings and know that they come from your love. Just as a father warns his sons about the danger ahead, you have put this here to warn us of dangers that existed then and exist now in slightly different forms. That you might keep us. That you might preserve us. We thank You for the truth that is here. For the greatness of Jesus. So that we would look no further than to Him. (coughs) Father, as we uh, deal with the distractions and temptations of our day, help us not to lose sight of Him but to always remember to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who, for the the joy that was before Him, scorned the shame of the cross for us. In whose name we pray, amen.